You're listening to What Do Scientists Do? A show where I talk to a different guest each episode and they teach us all about their favorite science topic. Along with each episode, we will also be posting activities that you can do at home. You can find those at bit.ly forward slash what do scientists do or at scientistsdopod on Twitter and Instagram. My name is Jessica, and today I get to talk to Austin, who tells us all about paleontology, the study of fossils. Can we find fossils of things that don't have bones? What on earth is a brachiopod? Let's find out. Hey everybody, I'm joined by Austin today. Austin, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. And what is your name? I already kind of gave it away. And what are your pronouns? Uh, my name is Austin, and my pronouns are he, him. And Austin, what do you study? I study paleontology. What's paleontology exactly? Paleontology is the study of the history of life on Earth. So you're an Earth scientist that studies biology. Cool. So what kinds of things do you specifically study? Personally, I am an invertebrate paleontologist. And the word invertebrate refers to uh, your backbone. And if you're an invertebrate, you don't have one. So I study things that don't have backbones, like shells, snails, uh, octopuses, things like that. So I study their fossils in the fossil record. Cool. So paleontologists study fossils and you study the fossils of things that don't have a backbone. Yeah, cool. yeah, exactly. Um, the reason I got into invertebrate paleontology is when I was in university, I took a course on dinosaurs. And then I took a course on things that came before dinosaurs. And I learned that dinosaurs were not old enough for me. And I liked things that were <laughs> really old. And I know it might be a weird thought to think that dinosaurs are not old. but Geologically speaking, which is just looking at the rock record, how long rocks live and, you know, take time. Dinosaurs are very young. Yeah, so you like saying the stuff that, when you say came before dinosaurs, what do you mean by things that came before dinosaurs? Yeah, so dinosaurs existed uh, during the Triassic, Jurassic, and Cretaceous periods, or the Mesozoic era, which is a long, long period of time that was couple hundred million years ago and ran up to the dinosaurs extinction 66 million years ago so i like studying things that came before that time period uh personally i like things from the paleozoic that's a that's another name for a period of time and the paleozoic had a lot of things that lived underwater in the ocean so i like studying ocean fossils of little shelled animals called brachiopods or another type of shelled animal called an ammonite. Um, they're very, very common. And if you live in certain places of Canada, you can find these fossils in your backyard. And that's what appeals to me so much about this type of fossils is they are everywhere. So you say that if you live in a certain part of Canada, where in Canada exactly could you find these types of fossils? Yeah, Paleozoic fossils of, of these invertebrate critters uh, are in places like Ontario around the Great Lakes region. They're at the tops of mountains in Alberta, which is really weird to think about. But the ocean floor has been pushed all the way up on land so that they are now found at the top of mountain ranges. That's super cool. So they existed so long ago that since that time, 
things that used to be at the bottom of the ocean have changed. The landscapes changed so much that they've gotten pushed to the top. Of exactly. Entire mountains. The Earth, uh, when you look at it on a long, long time scale, changes a lot. Looking around every day, it looks like the ground under your feet is very, very stable. But that moves around when given millions and millions and millions of years. And sometimes when two pieces of land or a piece of land under the water meet each other and hit each other, they have nowhere else to go. So one of the pieces of land goes under and the other rocks get forced up, up, up. And that's how mountains are made. And that can force rocks that are on the bottom of the ocean have these fossils of the little craters in them all the way up into the sky. Cool. How do you go and get those fossils? What does that look like? What does studying them look like? <laughs> well, uh, the way you do it is the first thing is you need a really nice pair of hiking boots because <laughs> that's about the only way that you're going to get to go up the mountain. So you strap on your hiking boots uh, and you drive out into the wilderness. You're usually camping, uh, which is always fun. And you do daily hikes to different uh, rock outcroppings where you can take uh, samples of fossils back to a lab. So a paleontologist spends about a third of the year, so about four months of the year, uh, doing field work, and the rest of the year, especially in Canada because it's so cold, back inside in a lab. So you take your fossils, you bring them back to a lab, and you study them, or you clean them. And what's the coolest thing that you've ever done with a fossil? Personally, uh, I brought a fossil back to life. Not so much in the way that you see on the news or like Jurassic Park where they clone an animal and they bring it back to life. But I took a brachiopod, which, as I mentioned earlier, is a little shelled animal that used to live in the ocean. Well, they still live in the ocean, just very, very deep. And there's not as many of them anymore. And what I did is I scanned this. So I made an image of it that was 3D on a computer. And then I printed that 3D image on uh, a type of 3D printing uh, plastic that replicated what a shell would have been like when it was alive. Because fossils are made of stone. They wouldn't interact the same way with the world that they would that when they were alive. So basically, I took the fossil and I made it act in the world like it would be if it was alive uh, by printing it in the correct material. And then I put it into water and I watched how the water interacted with it. So I got to see what this animal would have uh, been like in its natural habitat. That's super cool. So when we can't exactly find that thing still living to see how it behaved, we can try to, in your case, you made a physical like model of it in order to see maybe how it would have behaved back then. And you mentioned that you were doing stuff with shells. If something doesn't have something hard on it, like shells or bones, which lots of invertebrates, things without a backbone, um, might not have those things, do you find fossils of them very often? You don't find fossils of those very often, which is why the fossil record, which just means all the fossils we know of, is considered incomplete. And that a lot of the things that lived, we don't know about and may never know about. It's a little bit sad, but it also makes fossils all the more special. Sometimes there's very cool areas that have amazing preservation. Um, I believe, I'm going to mispronounce it, but the German word is Lagerstaten or something along those lines. And 
it has incredible preservation where you can see the soft parts. The most famous example of one of these, uh, well, there's two really famous examples. The first one is Archaeopteryx, which uh, is how we discovered that dinosaurs actually had feathers. And the feather imprints have been preserved. But uh, the one example of fossils of completely soft-bodied, so without shells or hard bits that would fossilize, uh, is the Burgess Shale in Canada. It's a World Heritage Site, and it has fossils from the Cambrian period, and they are so wacky to look at. They come in all crazy shapes and sizes because they're these soft-bodied worm-like animals. And without this Burgess Shale, this exceptional preservation, we would have no idea that they even lived at all. That's so cool. Where is the Burgess Shale? It is in British Columbia, which is the province in Canada that is the furthest to the west and the south. So it's a little bit near where I live, but it's still a little bit, a little bit of a drive. Cool. Austin, we've talked a lot about different fossils. Do you have a personal favorite fossil? That is quite the question for a paleontologist. I'm going to give you two because that's all I can narrow it down to. So my first favorite vertebrate. So remember, invertebrate means you don't have a backbone. So vertebrate means you do have a backbone. So my favorite vertebrate fossil is an ankylosaur dinosaur. Those were the ones with the big clubs on their tail. And I really like those fossils because they have this special thing called ostoderms. And that's just a big word. But basically what it means is they have bones that are just in their skin. And that's what makes their plate armor that goes around. They're really neat. And I just really love them. Um, My favorite invertebrate fossil is a spiriferid brachiopod. So brachiopod is the, the word, the little shelled organism that I talked about earlier. And spiriferid is just a special type of those. And they have long uh, spines on the side or wings on the side. And they're, they're just really fun to look at. And they're really beautiful. And they were also the hardest thing to scan when I was working on the 3D models of them. So it was the hardest puzzle to put together, but it was the most satisfying to complete. So that's why I adore spiriferid brachiopods. That's really cool. We'll have to find some pictures of those to post them along with this episode so that people can see what those look like. And I know that you're an invertebrate paleontologist because you like things older than dinosaurs, but dinosaurs are a very popular thing. Have you ever gotten to dig up the dinosaur bone? I have. When I was in, when I was at the University of Alberta, we got to do it as part of our schooling. And I went to a bone bed in Edmonton called the Danik Bone Bed. And I got to dig up fossils of a duckbill dinosaur. There is a big, it's called a death assemblage, which is just a large uh, assemblage or a large number of bones in one place. So a lot of animals either went there when they when they died or an event happened that killed them all at once. Um, and it's a big collection of bones and you can dig them up and you can go back year and year again and find more and more bones. That's really cool. Is that a common thing? Is it easy to find dinosaurs? I, it depends on on where you are and who you are. Uh, certain people are very good at finding dinosaurs. Finding a bone bed is unique. Those, those are hard to find. 
However, if you're in the right place, you can find dinosaurs by digging in the dirt around where you live. For example, if you live in the Badlands in Alberta, you can find not these beautiful dinosaur bones that you'd see in museums, because the best things always get put in museums. You would find maybe little fragments of bones, uh, which you can always identify because they have holes in them. So one of the really funny things uh, you can do is if you see a rock that you think is a fossil and it has tiny holes in it, it stick out your tongue, and then you can put the fossil on your tongue. And if it sticks to your tongue, it's probably a fragment of a bone. Uh, so if you live in an area like that, you find these tiny little fragments that stick to your tongue all over the place. But you have to have an eye for them, and you do have to go looking. Why do they stick to your tongue? Is it just because of like the air bubbles? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's the air bubbles. So when it hits the moisture that's on your tongue, it sticks. Now, you can't take a big honking uh, three-foot-long dinosaur bone stick it on your tongue and expect it to stick. No, I, they have to be the, the tiny little fragments. Yeah, that's not to say that you should go around just licking things to see if they're dinosaur bones. You absolutely shouldn't. No. Though I do know that this is the second thing that I've heard of in kind of geology or science that does involve putting things in your mouth. Actually, the third thing, because I know that geologists sometimes lick rocks to see if there's salt in them and that they'll also rub them on their teeth to see how big the grain sizes are. So there seems to be a lot of putting rocks and fossils in your mouth involved. So uh, the caveat, or the, the thing I'm going to say is one thing we always said in Supernova, do you remember what it is? Don't eat science. Don't eat science. Do not eat science. Uh, I've been I've been trained uh, in, in this, and so we have a lot of other geologists. So we know when it is an appropriate time to uh, lick your your rock or your fossil to test for something. And we're not just going around licking everything that we pick up. We're doing it for a reason. <laughs> yeah, you're doing it because you already suspect that you might have to tell the difference between something in it. And the only way to tell is by putting it in your mouth in some way. Yes. <laughs> Professionally. Professionally, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's super cool. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about? I think I'd love to talk a little bit about something called deep time, which is a really fun word uh, because it's something that I deal with every single day. And it's something that's not always fully understood by everyone. Deep time looks at the time in the very, very far past. Now, you might all think that your parents are old. And they lived a really, really, really long time ago. But when you're looking at deep time, your parents are very, very young. And, and I challenge you all to go tell your parents that they're very, very young. They'll love it. Deep time deals with time on the scale of hundreds and hundreds of millions of years. It uses the beginning of the universe and the beginning of the Earth as, as, as base points. So to give you an example of this, I want everyone to stick out their favorite arm. For me, it's my left arm is my favorite arm. And right at the top of your shoulder, that is the beginning of uh, the Earth. And all the way at the tips, tip, tip, tip of your finger, that is today. And I'm going to just mark out some major events on that timeline to show you how much time things like today and yesterday really take up on the big scale of things in this deep time perspective. So is everyone ready? Stick out your arm. So if we start at the shoulder and we move along, 
the formation of Earth. We move along to the elbow, and still not that much has happened. Uh, and if you keep going, just past your elbow, you'll find where eukaryotic life started. So that that's our ancient, 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 ancient one-celled ancestors. And that's all the way past your elbow. If we keep moving up all the way to our palm, just at the top of our palm, below our fingers, that is something called the Cambrian explosion. So that's when a lot of animals came around. And that is the beginning of the Paleozoic period. So my favorite period. And that's when the stuff that I appeared uh, really starts to come around. If we keep moving up and you go all the way up past your third knuckle, past your second knuckle, up to your first knuckle, that's where the dinosaurs are. So just, just take, take a look. If you think dinosaurs are old, look at how big your arm is and look where the dinosaurs are up at your fingers. A lot of time happened before the dinosaurs. And not a lot of time happened after them. And if you keep moving up, if you go right to the tip of your finger and you were to scrape off the tiniest bit of skin, that is all of human history right there just in the very tip of your finger. So that arm scale gives you an idea of how long things existed. And as a paleontologist, what time scales we're working with and how to put everything in perspective. Yeah, so it's hard to even imagine how long the Earth was around for before humans existed, before even dinosaurs existed. How old is the Earth? I believe the current estimate is 48 five six billion years old which is just just a lot it's a, that's a four with how many zeros is that one nine i think nine i think yeah a four with nine zeros <laughs> that is a whole lot of time passing before before humans were even around and all these animals coming and going and all these extinction events and things like that and the earth moving around it's really crazy to think about Oh, do you have a favorite extinction event? I have to ask. Do I have a favorite? Yeah, mass extinctions are just such a cool thing. Uh, I love studying them. I don't study them personally, but learning about them is so much fun. So I don't know a lot about any specifics. For everybody listening, I took one course that was an earth science course in my entire degree, which is the only reason I know that you can lick rocks (laughs) professionally. Professionally. <laughs> Professionally. I'm going to say that I think my favorite extinction event would be the, was it the Ice Age that occurred around 10,000 years ago? Was there an Ice Age then? Uh, yeah, so uh, about 10, 10 11,000 years ago, uh, an Ice Age. We're, we're still in an ice house climate. We're just in an interglacial period, which is, that's a whole other thing to talk about. But uh uh, during Ice Age, you have these these warming and cooling cycles, and that determines how much ice is on the planet. But we're technically still in an ice uh, an ice climate, so we might be moving out of that with things that are happening in the world. But that that's just a little interesting factoid for you all. Yeah, so we're not in like the Ice Age extinction event, but we're still in kind of a slightly colder period in yep. Big Earth history than there had been before the ice age interesting my favorite i'm gonna say the ice age like ten thousand years ago partially because i don't know a lot about a ton of extinction events but that was the one that created the ice man that they dug up i don't remember exactly where they dug it up but we were able to get a lot of very cool information 
from this very well mummified person under the ice about how humans would have behaved around 10,000 years ago in that area. So I think that's very cool. You could do a whole episode on the Iceman. I remember reading about it when I was a kid, but I'm going to say that's my favorite mass extinction, I guess. <laughs> so you're, you're looking at back to people. So that's a uh, biological anthropology. Uh, when you look at, at the evolution of people and remains of people is biological anthropology. That's one thing I didn't clarify earlier, which is paleontologists. We just deal with all the other animals. <laughs> and anthropologists deal with people specifically. Yeah. yeah. That would be a whole other very cool that... episode to do as someone who studies that kind of stuff. Is there anything that you would like to promote? Yeah, absolutely. I currently am working in uh, ocean science, which I connected with through my background in studying fossils of the ocean. And we just released a really cool resource on how to make action plans. And we do it from an ocean acidification perspective. So it helps to teach uh, students and kids how to take science or take their knowledge of science and turn it into real world change, which is something that there's sometimes a disconnect with. It would be really cool. It's on our website at oceanacidification.ca under the spot for educators. Anyone wants to check that out? That'd be awesome. Super cool. And I'll post that link along with this episode just so that it's easy to find. Yeah, if you're a teacher or a parent or a kid who wants to know how you can help the ocean out and do things in your community, you can check out oceanacidification.ca. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Austin. No problem. I, I had a ton of fun. And as always, a big thank you to everybody listening. For more science fun, you can check out our at-home activities and past episodes at bit.ly forward slash what do scientists do, or you can find us on Twitter or Instagram at scientistsdopod. That's also where we'll be announcing our guests for each episode. So if you have a question about anything from microwaves to megalodons, you can tag us on Twitter or send us an email at whatdoscientistsdo at superstaff.ca. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Bye for now! This podcast was made by Supernova at Dalhousie University, a network member of Actua. For more information on our summer camps, workshops, and more, check out supernova.dal.ca.